corrupted nerds ensconced in the twilight of their bedroom, whether it be in Paris, Singapore, Lagos, Bucharest, or indeed even Sydney. And from Sydney, welcome to Corrupted Nerds, episode 17. Hi, I'm Still Gerian. Well, today we return to RuxCon 2016, the hacker conference held in Melbourne back in October, and a recording of the infamous RuxCon panel, the whole thing. This is Corrupted Nerds, a podcast about information, power, security, and all the cybers in a global internet revolution that's changing everything. The RuxCon panel is the event that closes the conference, and in 2016, it was yet another stellar lineup. We had Jill Slay, or should I say, Professor Jill Slay, who's director of the Australian Centre for Cybersecurity at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. We had Richard Johnson, who manages the vulnerability development for Cisco Talus. We had Barry Anderson, who's a security architect at Cisco, and myself, and our moderator was Dr. Solette Dreyfus, a journalist and research fellow at the University of Melbourne. We covered an enormous number of uh, topics from the Mirai botnet to uh, attack of the refrigerators, firmware hacking, uh, the Internet of Cows got a mention, uh, the census fail, the disaster that was the Australian 2016 census gets a big run through amongst many other things. Uh, Shadow Brokers is in there, Guccifer 2.0 and others. A couple of quick housekeeping things though. One is that uh, this recording is taken just straight out the mixing desk so I'm not responsible for uh, some of the uh, variation in levels shall we say. Uh, Also I've kind of left it run as it is with a minimum of editing to get the kind of flavour of the event, but unfortunately that means, and this is our final um, warning, uh, there was a Twitter feed on a screen behind the panellists. You'll hear the audience break into laughter from time to time. We don't really explain that. You'll just have to uh, come along to RuxCon next year to find out how all that works. This discussion was recorded on Sunday the 23rd of October in Melbourne, Australia. Enjoy. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the panel. Um, I am indeed Sulet. We have a fantastic uh, panel. Um, My voice is a bit croaky today, so I apologize um, for that in advance. But um, hopefully we'll be able to to move ahead with that. Can I talk, uh, first of all, about introductions here? Uh, We have Stilgarian, journalist who I suspect you all know quite well, freelance writer, talker who covers politics, the internet, security, privacy, and cybercrime. Uh, He's got a background in computer science and linguistics, and he's worked for lots of different media organizations. Uh, He is a problem child who tweets too much by his own definition, Um, and uh, he does, however, sometimes describe himself as a good boy who always follows instructions. Um, Metz Ferrer is a researcher at Microsoft Labs. She is uh, an expert in malware. She spends her days deep in the laboratory uh, picking apart malware and will give us some deep insights into that, which I'm looking forward to. Um, Barry Anderson is a... um, 
architect, security architect for Cisco. He's been in IT for 25 years, although he doesn't look that old. Uh, he's been a programmer, sister admin, a firewall jockey, instant responder, and believes in automating things to empower people, not replace them. Professor Jill Slay, AM, is the director of UNSW's Australian Centre for Cybersecurity at UNSW Canberra ADFA. Her expertise is in digital forensics, but she said she seems to spend most of her time developing curriculum. Uh, this um, uh, centre, which she is so lovingly um, growing, uh, has developed critical mass in cross-disciplinary research, and she also teaches cybersecurity. She's worked with a number of in- industry partners, um, Gigamon, uh, with the Australian Army, uh, and Tier 3 Huntsman. Um, and last but not least, Richard Johnson, whose bio has just disappeared from my sheet. Where did it go? Uh, uh, there we go. Sorry. Um, who is also Cisco Talos Group, uh, who is visiting us from Austin, Texas. Uh, we were having a conversation earlier, uh, the home of a major institution, a university where the students are allowed to pack guns, uh, <laughs> but only if they're concealed. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, the, and, the, and one lecturer who was interviewed said she likes to stand with her back to the wall. That was not in my bio, <laughs> no, that was he didn't put that in his bio. I did. <laughs> he's got twelve years of experience of standing with his back to the wall. No, he's got twelve years of experience uh, and expertise, two, leadership two. in software security industry, and his responsibilities include research and development of advanced fuzzing, crash analysis technologies, um, facilitating the automation of the vulnerability triage and discovery process, and he's co-founder of the Ununiformed Journal. Welcome to our panel. Sorry, Ununiformed. (laughs) Yeah, Freudian slip. Welcome to our panel. So I thought what we would do today is uh, I'll set the tone by asking a few questions of our panelists and kick off the conversation. Um, But shortly into it, I'd be very keen if you guys have questions, um, even if we're hotly in some discussion, if there's something that's burning in your throat, you want to get out to either say briefly uh, or ask of the panelists, please do put your hand up and I'll call on you um, and see if you can contribute to the conversation. The first topic of conversation uh, is the Mirai Botnet DDoS, which wasn't originally on the agenda printed in the handbook, but I think, hey... <laughs> Probably wasn't wasn't on a lot of people's original handbook plan for today, um, but I'm hoping that you might be able to give us your thoughts uh, on it and a little bit about origins as well. If you have any advice or comment, um, well, I don't have a lot on the origins of Mirai, except we all know that it's using embedded devices, right? Um, cameras, uh, DVRs, uh, routers that had default passwords, things like that. So. Uh, I think the context here would be along the lines of, um, you know, IoT has been a hot topic in security research lately. It's hacking like it's the 90s if you're doing uh, actual exploitation of it. Um, I'm not sure that we would all agree that using a default password is necessarily a high bar for doing things, right? Um, We do have a problem with uh, consumer devices being shipped with default logins and passwords, and there not being any process around changing that um, in addition to that, of course, they were using DNS reflection attacks that amplify the amount of traffic out of these default logins and passwords um, and targeting things like DynDNS and others. 
Um, I guess I can plug a little bit. OpenDNS was not impacted by this, which uh, Cisco acquired a little while ago. The nice thing about that is OpenDNS actually caches records. So if you had changed to using OpenDNS yesterday, you would have been fine in the States. I realized that Mirai didn't actually impact most of the rest of the world. It was targeted on mostly US, but um, the, Im the important thing here is that we just really have an education problem uh, with users. We don't force them to change passwords. Um, the best that we're getting right now is maybe a MAC address being assigned as a default password. Um, but last year, uh, we actually did some research in my group and found that Roadrunner, who was the main ISP for Canada, uh, shipped with uh, the MAC address as part of the um, access point ID as well as password, only they use it as the access point ID, not the password. So the, everything had a unique I, uh, access point ID. The passwords were actually derived from that exact uh, address that was visible to you. So once again, you could simply drive by, see the access point ID that was relative to the MAC address, and derive the password from it. So even within uh, the industry, people haven't quite figured out that you know, people aren't quite as stupid as they think they are. We can make them uh, change their passwords when they get these devices, and hopefully we won't see this again. Um, my only other comment on that is that, you know, 10 years ago, I think um, cameras and DVRs were kind of a, a hot hacking target because they had large hard drives and no logs, and if you needed to proxy through something, they were pretty ideal. Um, but nowadays, uh, we just need to shore up that as an as attack vector. Grab that mic back. Um, and ask Metz if you have some thoughts on this. You've been dissecting it and perhaps saw some precursors of it in the wild not so long ago. Yeah, I think this is very interesting. Although it already appeared five years ago, so now I think it's becoming mature in a sense that it's for this month we have the Mirai source code being leaked. Uh, I think how many of you have downloaded the source code? Uh, don't be shy. No one's, okay, no one's only one. Okay, so immediately after it was leaked, I created a signature. So you know, as researcher, I'm on a defender group, and it's more of a reactive than proactive. So um, whenever we have this kind of new things coming out, we create signatures, and we can immediately uh, identify how many is going to download those uh, malicious code. Uh, although it's not necessarily it'll be on the Windows platform, but the implication of such attack, it will be uh, huge in the ecosystem. So in the Mirai case, if you've seen the source code, which is in GitHub at the moment, you can easily see how easy the source looks like, <laughs> and it's fully packed with all its arsenals and attacks, basically UDP, TCP attack, and it's a very... Um, like a, a plugin modularized type. So because of this, and it was advertised um, being publicly known, a lot of people will be very interested to try it out. Last night, we have the huge um, down to the dynamic DNS in the East Coast, uh, which, is, which is very unfortunate, I think, because uh, we already understand the implication of having the leak like such a uh, highly functional uh, Mirai um, source code. But prior to this uh, big attack uh, last night, we already have in the wild uh, called Niadrop, and it was really found uh, in the wild. And uh, based on that, it's um, 
I think it's going to be coming more a trend now that we will see IoT. But the problem is on the defensive side, we don't have solution really <laughs> coming from those, <laughs> you know, from those uh, vulnerable uh, cameras and uh, DVR. I think there should be jumping into the Twitter feed that address at GitHub, which um, hopefully will be up there momentarily. But um, you had some fun malware facts that you sent me, fun facts for cocktail parties on malware about statistics on how often malware is only seen on a single computer versus um, 2 to 10 versus 11 to 100. Yeah, so um, much of the malware appears in a box. Basically, uh, a lot of you guys are very offensive, and <laughs> I think uh, whatever you're doing is working. <laughs> so on the defense side, uh, whoever on the defense side here, please raise, I think the ANZ guys, they're the instant response team, they're doing a lot of good tools, hunting stuff as that arrives in the box, you know. There's a lot of overlapping, actually, from those highly sophisticated malware attack coming from, you know, it could be state-sponsored or espionage into a commodity. So it's really complex for each of the box. We will have uh, a lot of noises. Some of the malwares are noise of them. They're not really, um, they're really malware, but they don't have the intention of the attacker itself. I think somebody had a very good discussion on that part coming from, um, I think that was yesterday. He he mentioned about generating a lot of um, garbage or executable on the machine just to make it painful for those who's going to investigate that box. Because if imagine if you have 30 executable on one compromised machine, It'll be t- it's going to take you time to understand what's going on. I hope. <laughs> so, so I think that one of the stats uh, um, uh, Miss sent me ahead of this because I asked all the panelists to provide at least three statistics to make the discussion <laughs> um, was that it was only 0.1% um, of malware that was on a 1,000 plus machines. Um, I think that's, that was right, that stat. Much of the machines at the moment, um, 96% of them at least have an overlapping with the enterprise and the consumer side, the threats that we see. So uh, not necessarily that you have uh, commodity malware. It's something that you should ignore in the enterprise because they also appear side by side. And sometimes they kind of like piggyback in that way. So right now on a commodity side, there's a lot of uh, support scams. So uh, for every, we have at least in telemetry, we have 10 million impressions per day. So for these cameras, they're making a lot of money, really, really huge. So imagine 10 million impressions per day for just a text cam, like, you know, popping up those free call support team and kind of like uh, offering a free uh, call us and we'll fix your machine, something like that. Yeah, that is really massive globally. Um, I can give you a lot of numbers, maybe, but I report. Uh, we, we've actually had the first RuxCon panel question there. Oh, okay. I'm just curious. You, you briefly asked for a show of hands about people on the offensive side. Uh, sorry, the defensive side. Um, maybe a show of hands of people who are on the uh, offensive side. You, you wanted me to ask how many people are on the offensive side? Yeah, let's, let's ask. Oh, let's, 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 let
pens up and we'll take some photos. I like yeah. how you called it. I like how you called everyone offensive. <laughs> well, You're all offensive. The best defense is a good offense, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, Stilgarian, do you have some comment on on this attack? I mean, looking at it from a, a media perspective, I think one of the funniest things is how quickly it turns from I can't reach my favourite website to it's Russia. <laughs> and, and there almost seems to be no intervening steps in this. Well, wait, um, wait, isn't the intervening step it's WikiLeaks? And then it's Russia? Don't get me started. Uh, well, no, on WikiLeaks. No, no, if that you, was, if that you was... want to have a fight with me, no. we'll discuss WikiLeaks. No. Go on. No, I like the response to the WikiLeaks. We'll save that post. one for after whiskeys, I think. Where the uh, megalomania is really set in when uh, WikiLeaks is telling uh, the world, that, uh, telling Twitter, okay, all you attackers that are attacking America, you can stop now. They get the point. Like, come on. Yeah, it's not all about WikiLeaks. You know, there's a certain solipsism creeping into the organisation there. Uh-huh. Um, but there, there is, you know, within the media, this, you know, the, the news cycle demands an explanation immediately, which seems to mean that whichever random theory hits the news first, that's it. I love the map, probably posted ironically, but showed the heat map of where the, uh, the, the heaviest... Down the heaviest concentration of downed websites was in the United States. And they go, oh, this is Trump. You know, doing that without any understanding that, well, no, that's just where the data centres are. (laughs) So, of course, that's where the sites are. And, of course, because the targets were all in the United States, it's again, well, that's why it's Russia. I don't know why it wasn't China or Iran or someone else, but that made it Russia, except, no... This is where all the data centres are. So this, I, I thought that. it was. I thought the heat map was just where people couldn't get Netflix fast enough. <laughs> well, no, well, Australia wasn't on the map. No. Let, let's let's give Russia some credit. They have proper reverse engineers. They probably have better exploits than default passwords. <laughs> That's true. I, I did see also this. Oh my God! There could be ten million devices in this. I don't know where that number came from. And again, the first number that someone throws into the media becomes the official number. But I thought, look, I'm going to throw in some statistics here. Again, 10 million is not all that special in a botnet. I mean, it's at the big end, but Storm, some estimates, well, some estimates up to 50 million, but the estimates started at 250,000, so that's one of the best statistics ever. Um, Up in the, the 10 million is not unprecedented. I think what is unprecedented is that it's not fully powered PCs, of course. It's toasters and hair dryers and... Attack of the fridge. Attack of the fridge. And, and I, this is the part that I find frustrating, is that security folks have been talking about the threat of refrigerageddon for how many years now? I mean, yeah, yeah, Attack of the fridge, this is a chilling scenario, I know. But, the, but according to Jill, it's 11 years. I know I've certainly been writing about it for seven uh, Craig Valley wrote a paper in 2005 about Attack of the Fridge because he and I were going to have a grant together to buy a fridge. We were going to ask the Australian <laughs> Research Council for money to buy a fridge. In those days, they're about $12,000. Yes, do you know that, that original internet refrigerator, do you know how many they sold in Australia? <laughs> no, no, two. <laughs> two. Um, but this, I mean, this is a real thing because... These are not devices that we will interact with directly, so there's no obvious sign that your fridge has turned evil. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something we really need to be careful about. We've got a quick question from the crowd, actually. Uh, yep, go ahead, and then we'll come to Barry. 
Uh, it's actually quite topical because uh, recently I put an order in for some IP cameras that came from China. I'm not going to say which brand, but they would not turn on or activate without being able to dial home. <laughs> and so my question is, I guess we've always been under the assumption that there's you know, firmware bugs or some sort of vulnerability in the device, and if it's exposed, then someone else will exploit that. Has anyone looked at or have you received any reports of or know of any cameras that come with deliberate backdoors implanted by the vendor targeting Australian networks, and where are we with that? Do you have any knowledge, or have you seen? I think we have an interesting discussion about this thing. Uh, uh, the same topic. I forgot the, the name of the card, but um, <laughs> actually, it's it's about the hardware. You know, the the, the supply chain. When it gets to the enterprise, we, we're all focused on the software. Somebody talk about the firmware, but the hardware. Uh, and the, the guy who talk about the firmware is very nice because it's a lot of method in how he managed to um, almost like reverse it himself and understand that um, that processes almost like document DYI document. Uh, but on interesting note that the same concept is is um, there's a huge implication because on the supply chain when you hide you can hijack those like um, devices you can implant already before it gets to those um, customer it could be um, I don't know um, banks <laughs> or um, big enterprises here in Australia or anywhere in the world so given that you mentioned this it's it's uh, beginning a very interesting area. And now nobody wants to talk th about this because there's no solution to <laughs> Just like the IoT. It's, it's, uh, you know, uh, I was in Bucharest uh, earlier this year and somebody had to talk about IoT. And with one of the vendors shouted in the middle of the, of, the, of the conference because they said, this is illegal. Why are you talking about this? And the guy is talking about this is a Cisco. It's coming from Cisco. It's a hackathon uh, in Cisco in um, uh, Herzliya or Israel. So they had a hackathon and they were exposing this about vulnerability. Similar to the hardware, the IoT. These are areas that are very, they're now there. We, we have source code. We have running workable codes that are working in the wild, but we have no solutions. <laughs> That's the scary part. There's a, couple of, there's a couple of things to point out, right? One is, there's a reason there's a Twitter account called Internet of Shit. <laughs> right? A lot of the things that we're connecting up to the internet don't need to be. We, we cloud enable all these things for personalization. Personalization just means somebody steals your data to sell. Right? That's, that's really what it means. For you, it's great because, hey, you get targeted Netflix recommendations. But... Really, we, we tend to forget that whole, if you're not paying, you're not the customer, you're the product. Somebody's making money somehow. So if it's free, guess what's getting sold? You. Right? So that's, that's kind of the starter. The other thing is the uh, point that was made about fridges like 11 years ago, right? So security folks go, uh, you can attack all these fridges, and, of course, the response is, but who would ever want to attack a fridge? Like, what are you going to do with a fridge? Well, we just found out what you're going to do with enough fridges, right? <laughs> <laughs> because as, as systems thinkers, we suck, 
right? Nobody ever thinks about what's the implications of this. We just think about, hey, what can I get for free? This is kind of the worst dystopia ever, really, isn't it? There's, there's, there's no one jumping out with submachine guns to slaughter us at night. I want we sharpened have... katanas. Yeah, oh, you saw that thing earlier today, too. Someone pointed out, yeah, we don't have the ninjas jumping out with their katana to catch us in the street. It's where our society is brought to a halt by a bunch of Siberian kids with thousands of hair dryers. <laughs> so it is Russia. <laughs> But the interesting implication—the <laughs> interesting implication—is did did anyone see what happened overnight? I know we we're all getting habit at the uh, at the party, but did anyone hear about the jester overnight? Russia's nope. foreign affairs ministry. What well, got hacked? Yep. Got Must. replaced. Got replaced with a fairly unambiguous message. <laughs> So, so, Jill, I think you're possibly the only person providing solutions. I want to answer the question. Oh, actually. jump in and answer the question and then uh, answer some, yeah. provide some longer-term solutions. Last year I had an honours student who actually looked at the, the forensics of the firmware. He's come up with a model. It's probably not all theoretical. I do have the output of what we did last year. I just don't have it. I can't remember in my head what we were actually looking at. I had another guy come to see me who sees that from a research point of view this is a most important area that we should be looking at. And even though I agree with you, it all sounds so hopeless, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to deal with the insecure internet of all these things? We have to start somewhere. And when, so I think for me, open academic research, which is of a pragmatic nature, we can just bring it out into the public. That's what I'm going to try and do. Can people download um, your students' public w- work on that from your um, from your website on the university? I, I, I need to uh, find it because he's in the pro- he was meant to be getting it published. Uh, I haven't se- I haven't seen it since. Everybody email Jill all at once, <laughs> <laughs> asking for those papers. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I will. If you were to email me, I'll find you what we've got. Yeah. So, so my suggestion on this is in the same way that there are, you know warnings and travel bans to different countries. Yeah. We can do something similar for vendors. Yeah. If they're coming from countries that we know, uh, they've got nation-state actors targeting our infrastructure and our, our IT and our assets, then we know that they've got a high probability that they are, they've got their kits been infiltrated, they're coming into our market, it's IoT devices, even just cameras. Why not just have a list of those vendors that say, hey, these are high warning don't, you know, don't use these if you can avoid it. Can, can I just say it's really cute that you think our friends don't attack us? <laughs> yeah. I would have thought that as soon as you put got find the phone home software, yeah, that you could draw some conclusions from that. Uh, but it's a good idea, and that same kind of technique was used by Idaho National Lab with the insecure SCADA system or SCADA systems. Uh, it's more like embarrass the vendor. Uh, and then make it known to the public, to the community that would have bought the system. So I think it's a great idea, but somebody has to put their time into it. That's the problem. Well, the other, the other thing as well is you can just not buy, um, not buy cameras off of uh, off the internet. Yeah. That's the uh, that's the other solution. Well, obviously, uh, you shouldn't buy anything off the. Internet. Well, absolutely not. I never buy anything off the internet. On a more serious note, there have uh, been some uh, like solid discussions at conferences on supply chain security. Uh, certainly some of the big hardware manufacturers, Cisco, amongst them, have been looking very closely at where they're getting the chips from, how are they transported, um, can you actually trace this individual item all the way back. 
And I think we're going to see something very similar to Brazil's Internet of Cows, in that Brazil had a situation where uh, some infected meat from Brazil was sold in Europe and some people got sick. And they could not tell where that beef had come from. Mm -hmm. So Europe banned all Brazilian beef for a year until they sorted it out. And Brazil's uh, beef industry is particularly interesting because it's not big ranches, it's, it's just thousands upon thousands of small farmers. So, uh, all right, I was told this by IBM and they did a big plug for it. Within a very short time, they had put RFID tags on every cow in Brazil and now you can go into the supermarket in Berlin, read the bar barcode off tonight's steak and know exactly which farm it came from in Brazil. So I turned that around. I can see that we'll have similar supply chain uh, validation all the way through the hardware industries here and vendors will need to work to get that little green tick. Well, that's interesting because that does take a technological solution to what is originally a supply chain and, and policy problem. Well, a market solution, really. In, yeah. in that, you know, you're not going to sell stuff if you haven't got that that well, right. supply so chain cleanliness. Specific to embedded devices and the fact that we want cheap online computers and everything going into, or you, consumers do. You know, it's an intractable problem that people will sell these devices because people will buy them. Uh, somebody's finding value, or if, nowadays you just don't have a choice. The new version will come with this connectivity. So, unfortunately, we're, we have many layer cake of fail here, right? We have number one, default passwords. This is what we're seeing today. There really isn't a great solution for default passwords that are already out there. You can't force the consumer to change their passwords unless you get another guy doing like the internet census of 2014 where he just owns every router on the planet and bricks them. You know, this has been proposed on Twitter, so, uh, you know, some other enterprising individual will have to do that. But, um, you know, once we can get to the point where people are changing their passwords, then we still have the problem of the software security layer that's actually the technical challenge of secure development practices, which is certainly not being followed either. You know, these uh, people are writing individual pieces of firmware at a scale where they just simply aren't investing in doing things like code auditing and, and fixing problems. So, um, you know, what, what I like to talk about in my, in my presentations is finding bugs at scale through things like fuzzing. And, um, you know, we don't have a lot of tools adapted towards automated vulnerability analysis of embedded devices. Hopefully we'll see some pressure um, from the market that people are interested in buying more secure software or through policy where uh, we'll ban it. Like in the U.S., you know, Mudge from the loft his current initiative is to try to do the cyber underwriters laboratory. The whole idea behind that would be able to do a review of the individual devices before they're sold in the U.S. market um, to ensure that certain uh, basic software security practices are being followed. You know, this is a big problem that's going to take maybe a decade or more to get there. So um, the question is, how, what can we do in the meantime to resolve that? Um, and, I mean, there aren't a lot of good answers. I, one of the statistics that we did have uh, written down was along the lines that um, less than 0.1% of malware is ever seen. So uh, different pieces of malware we see are unique. Um, and that's where the entire anti-malware industry <coughs> is pivoted to things like reputation-driven detection. So when you see a unique file and you get that alert in Chrome where, you, you know, this might be a dangerous file, are you sure that you want it? 
um, different pieces uh, and um, you know, Windows Defender and other antivirus products are all following this practice of let's take a hash of that file that you just downloaded. Have we seen it before? If we haven't, it's you know, pretty unusual to have a unique piece of software floating around on the internet. So mm. hopefully what we'll see is more perimeter defense that relies upon this technique so that we can block things along with things along the lines of uh, you know, identifying what default passwords might be for different devices, maybe being able to do things like passive OS fingerprinting so we can determine this ind indeed is that device that this traffic is going to, combined with the default passwords, maybe we need to block that because it's coming over the internet rather than through an intranet. Um, and I know we're going to talk about things like shadow brokers later, but even on the Cisco side, we saw some of that. The initial vector onto most of those devices was default passwords. And then they used exploitation to go further. So, you know, this is a problem that impacts both consumer devices as well as enterprise devices. And it's, um, you know, we have a long road to travel. Um, I might just ask Mitz if you can talk a little bit about what you saw um, as a strategy, the RAIN strategy in, oh. in malware for, particularly in the last couple of weeks, you were saying, through, through your lab. Yeah. So um, I think this one, um, I haven't, I haven't written any paper or anything like it, but at one point there's someone who also talked about this technique in our method, at least in the Black Hat a couple years back. So the idea is, um, imagine the platform is like a country or just like what we have right now. We have defenses of every layer. We have water, air, and you know space and land. So imagine the virtual space is also our global world and the platform will be the... So in that scenario, the idea is that uh, you don't know who you're going to attack or who will be the interesting uh, vulnerable in that area. So the idea of rain is like, it's going to rain. So it's going to rain and it's going to hit everyone. So regardless who you are, small house, big house, you're outside your house, inside your house, you have your protection, it doesn't matter. It's going to rain, you, you will see that. And um, the idea in, that, in this technique, which I can um, say very interesting, is that um, everybody gets hit, but only few will get the real attacks. So it's almost like fingerprinting a big, in a massive, massive scale, and then trying to know um, the, the, who's gonna get hit with this rain with a valuable information that can be easily you know, penetrated. So, that, so with that technique, you will have, like for example, a simple redirector or spam out of a blue, like this spam campaigns are not happening every day. So it's this, because these are, these are very expensive. This is not very cheap. When you have a massive scale of spamming, whether in a web browser or email, this is going to cost a lot of money. Um, and so you have this. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Vital. The Twitter feed Thank is taking over. <laughs> yes. Whose idea was this? <laughs> Too late. You should have known this was going to go bad. I know. Yeah, so down. the ransomware is a big thing too. So you, you will have you will see like I think a couple months ago, uh, one of the hospital here got hit by a ransomware. Uh, who knows about this story? So it's a very difficult scenario because everyone I think is still using a, a Windows XP which already get deprecated. <laughs> and imagine, like, suddenly you have... So this is the story of a kind of uh, idea of rain. Who, who's going to 
what what are this very critical infrastructure of, uh, for example, in Australia, you have banks, hospitals, that's that is still using very very old operating system that is so vulnerable, and that anyone and anywhere in the world is just a matter of click they can just get compromised. And how many machines that are dependent to in, in this scenario the hospital? Like imagine like uh, how many of of the nurses and all the equipment uh, attached to this OS. So yeah, it's a bit of panic, of course. <laughs> So I can see the only way that we're going to be able to compete as panelists <laughs> is to give this with with you with you with you would be comedians out there on Twitter <laughs> uh, is to let Stilgarian talk about census fail <laughs> because that will surely capture your attention over Twitter. Thank you, Miss Suleff. I would be most delighted to talk about census fail. <laughs> Wasn't it a clustered, a custard duck, I think is what we can call that <laughs> for a mixed audience. Um, who thinks they know broadly the story of how things unfolded on the night? Hands up. A few, okay, not, not many, not uh, any at all. A quarter of the so room, maybe. I read, I read Patrick's breakdown of it. Yeah. Those who actually read Patrick Gray's breakdown at Risky Business, yeah, that was pretty much spot on, and he got that within a, a very few hours. Fast, um, yeah. Not only because he has excellent contacts, but because everyone was more than willing to start blaming everyone else uh, for what happened. So, what we had, we had the Australian Bureau of Statistics in charge, we had IBM as the prime contractor... Uh, who were responsible for creating both the application to t- fill in your census form online and the infrastructure and the back-end data storage. Now, the, the key about census data is that it is something that has to be treated right up there with top-secret stuff. It is actually a crime for anyone to reveal anything from census data and, and the Bureau of Stats over the years has taken this very seriously. Now, what happened on the night... Instead of saying, you've got a month to fill this in, all the TV ads said, fill it in this night. So Australian citizens who trust the census uh, and have traditionally done so over the years went, all right, I'll finish dinner, wash the dishes and then sit down and do it. So their capacity planning was for 1 million forms per hour and they tested it to 1.5 million. Now, there are 10 million households in Australia and everyone finishes dinner at about the same time, so you do the math. (laughs) That was not necessarily the problem. The problem was that it started falling over and it had started falling over earlier in the day under relatively mild DDoS attacks. And it had gone offline for little bits and pieces. Just just straight up, it was not coping. The app was not keeping up. What about that wonderful Island Australia geo-blocking that was supposed yes. to work so well? Um, so, there, there, and, and this will come out, the, there is a Senate inquiry into this and submissions have been made, but everyone's, everyone involved, as I say, is blaming everyone else. The Senate starts hearing evidence on Tuesday, so this is going to be fun. They, they, they will not, however, be putting the Twitter feed behind them in the Senate at the time yeah, they're absolutely. doing the hearing. Although, as an aside, that might be fun. And a great idea. Great idea. Um, Various people are alleged to have offered various DDoS mitigation solutions at various times and various assurances were made, etc. We, we will find out in the fullness of time. But the strategy that had been decided upon, if this kind of thing happened, was called Island Australia. That is, they would cut uh, all traffic uh, from anywhere but, out, uh, but within Australia. 
Now, this, of course, A, assumes that all DDoS originates overseas when directed at Australian targets. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that that's a very good assumption. And B, it, it kind of assumes you've got your IP addressing worked out correctly. And it turns out that one of the, uh, the ISPs involved had told IBM and the ABS that the address range they had chosen and put their their um, servers on, for various reasons, they could not block that to be just Australian traffic. I don't know why they couldn't have written slightly more complex router rules, but that's the excuse they're giving. Uh, so that'll be fun too. Uh, now, while all this was happening, two things were also happening. No, three things. One, they had two uh, border routers. One of them died. So it took a while to bring that back up. And some called it a hardware failure. I don't know whether it was hard, hardware or where it, whether it got overloaded or whatever. But when they rebooted it, it failed to pull its configuration across. So they might not really have bothered. They, they took about an hour and a half to get that back online. Uh, the second thing that was happening was that uh, their social media managers... Um, I don't know what they were looking at, but you know, if you looked at Twitter, you know, everything was melting down and everyone was telling them it was melting down. They were cheerfully tweeting back, everything is working smoothly as expected. And please, fill in your census tonight. Fill in your census tonight. And, and like, it's simply what happened. Um, and the third thing that happened, once they, they set up Island Australia, that they found this unexplained traffic going out of the system to some overseas destination. Russia. Well, <laughs> this, this perhaps was the original assumption, but it turned out that was just IBM's performance monitoring telemetry <laughs> going out to IBM. But at that point... They... <laughs> There's a lot going on on the screen back there. Yeah, um, I'm not even going to try and summarise that uh, for the recording. Uh, but um, once unknown data was going out of the system somewhere, that's when they decided pull the plug and hit the big red button mark ASD. And I think personally, that was very much the right decision. They did not what was they did not know what was going on, and they did not know what data was going where. Now, as we now know. That was telemetry. That was a good thing. And we are now almost uh, certain that no data was exfiltrated. Uh, certainly none of mine was because I filled in a paper form. Um, <laughs> and so on. So we have two separate investigations happening now. One uh, by a Senate committee. As I say, they start hearing evidence on Tuesday. They've set aside all day for that. I suspect they'll add some more days. And uh, Alastair McGibbon, who, you know, our cyber czar, if you like, the Prime Minister's special advisor uh, on cyber security, the PM asked him to uh, write a report as well. That has been done. Um, and uh, the, it's with the PM. Whether that gets released or not, we don't know. That's up to the Prime Minister. But I suspect it will be released in, in the next few days because otherwise Alastair McGibbon is in front of that Senate committee on Tuesday and they'll just extract it from him with, you know, knitting needles and, and bamboo sticks and things. So we will find out more in the coming days, but that's it. And at the moment... Everyone's blaming everyone else for this complete custard duck. So, so just a question to Barry. Um, do you think it would have been a good idea for them to hire a security firm, for example? Well, <laughs> they should stop using Juniper routers and switch to Cisco. 
didn't didn't they say that they did and they did the whole uh, performance testing and they decided that the performance testing was insufficient so they actually on top of the 9.5 million or whatever they paid for the site they paid out another half a million for performance testing and that That's was correct you know when you look at that it's not so much census fail as it is outsource fail it's like here's, here's the grand theory of outsourcing right the grand theory of outsourcing is we have no skill at managing getting this thing delivered in-house so now we're going to transition to a setup where we have even less control and somehow it's going to magically get delivered. That's outsourcing. So the ABS is going, we have no understanding of what's required here, but somehow we're going to manage that IBM is going to deliver this. How? I'll just say I agree furiously with that and um, people in Canberra tell me that there's been so much outsourcing from government departments now over the years... Correct, as, as Barry said, there's no one left to understand how to manage the contracts. Just before we take this question, can I take a straw poll? How many of you predicted before August 9, Census Day, I think that was Census Day, that there would be problems with the census? <laughs> half the hands in the room are going up at that now, point. Now, do any of you work in government? <laughs> oh my god, people Two did people, put their hands up. <laughs> How many of you are liars? Yeah. <laughs> Shoot, go ahead. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but I found it incredibly embarrassing as an IT professional to see um, exactly what the setup was. Like, I had a poke around after it went down and after they brought it up again. They had, you know, no caching on their DNS. They were running the DNS server on the same network. They were throwing traffic around to different, obviously different boxes. The The SSL wasn't working. Like, it was just completely bonkers. And um, I've got uh, a couple of grads that work on my team from China, and they could see what was wrong with the system. Why did it take $9.5 million to build it? Good question. This is the question. We have another question. Unfortunately, our panel can't answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Nor would they want to. We might just get a couple more questions and then get panellists to respond to them en masse. Um, Do you think it was actually a good idea to give IBM such a contract after they've been blacklisted for the Queensland Health app? <laughs> I'll answer that now. No. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, in, in defence of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which is a, a strange situation I find myself in, um, <laughs> IBM had been their main uh, contractor for doing the census in previous years, um, and so they were familiar with the application and the requirements of the data and, and so on. Uh, that doesn't necessarily make it a good choice, but it makes it an obvious choice. Um, less a question, more a comment. So you made the comment that um, I used a paper form, so it didn't affect me, the, you know, the supposed exfiltration of data. Um, this is something I found um, overhearing all the time in the street, on the train, at work, wherever it was, friends and family. People had this uh, conceptual idea that oh, if I asked for a form and I put it all down in a form, then I wasn't affected by this, so my stuff was safe. It, and to me, it's less the, the idea of, or the obvious of, well, obviously that's going to be entered in by some sort of either automated, less likely manual process into the same backstore. Mm-hmm. But I think it says a lot about society as a whole that here we are nearly approaching 2017 and most people just simply assume, well, if I do the paper version of something, 
I'm not affected by this new age thing. Like, this is the mentality. And this isn't just like I'm talking about your grandparents or your uncle and auntie, your parents. I'm talking about like the young people that are like still in high school that as I go to work, I hear them chatting about this stuff on the train using lol and all the other cool words that they use as if it's their everyday language. And, you know, some of us are um, thankful we sit on both sides of that age gap. But, you know, it, it just it makes you realise that people say, oh, well, you're coming up with technology and, you know, so you get it. They don't get it either, right? There's, there's some that do, but there's a great majority that don't. I'm just curious as to what the panel thinks about the fact that people think, oh, if there's a paper version, I'm good, where it's like everything's digital. Actually, uh, so That's I don't a have a lot point. to comment on the census, but there was an article this week related to um, SSL certificate uh, that were given out. And so if you, do, if you go apply for an SSL certificate, they're supposed to do background research on your company. You fill out perhaps a paper form. It gets scanned in. Due to an OCR flaw um, and them scanning in the paper applications for SSL certificates, they misappropriated the certificates and gave them out to other people. And, of course, this is supposed to be you know, the part of the web of trust. So, uh, yeah, I mean, using paper certainly does not uh, sidestep the digital problems that we see. Barry, did you have some comments? Yeah, I just wanted to say one thing, and that was... If you used a paper form, your data wasn't keyed by the night. So, so that cutout, as it were, means that all the stuff that goes wrong on day zero, right, you've got some level of hope, let's face it, it's nothing more than that, but that by the time they get around to keying your data, the embarrassment factors actually cause them to fix some of the stuff that wasn't working day one. Well, I think, um, if, if I can make a quick comment, uh-huh. the, one of the issues um, with a lot of people had with the census wasn't the fact that um, the actual the thing on the night was going to fail, it was how secure their information was after the fact. And if you, uh, obviously, if you're filling out the, the paper form, then that's still going to be entered somewhere into a computer. Uh-huh. Um, and then I think they, were, they had a thing where they were going to keep the, the data separate from the names, and then only certain researchers were going to be allowed to, to access that uh-huh. data and the names and, and be able to put them both together. But then you ask, have to ask the question is, you know, how secure are these individual researchers? You've got thousands of, like, you know, uh, home PCs. We're just talking about malware and stuff like that. Like, if it's, you know, if it goes digitally, then it's, it's not really going to be secure is, yeah. is really the point. So, Very briefly, um, this is an incredibly complex area, but I will say, and I'm hoping someone on the Twitter stream knows what I'm talking about, there was a wonderful blog post by someone who had worked in the ABS in the previous census as a data entry and forms process person who gave us a wonderful outline of what actually happens and that will not have changed that's not changed for many years it was very reassuring Uh, one of the key points I will mention is that it's two months before they start keying data in the first couple of months they're just making sure they've got all the forms and reading the barcodes and getting up then it takes them 18 months to actually get them keyed in or scanned in I should say and, and verified so if someone knows where that blog post is, please stick it on the tweets. So just a question, another straw poll. Um, we had seven senators who, um, who were saying they were not going to fill in parts of the census, even though they were required to do so because they were concerned about privacy issues. Noticeably that the census was going to collect your name and address and keep it rather than um, not keeping it and link it to other, uh, do create other data linkages and also store all the census data for four years as opposed to 18 months, all significant changes. Um, how many of you all had concerns before you filled in the census about the change arrangements for privacy? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I pull out a third? A third of the room. I would have thought it was higher in this paranoid audience. Excellent. So it's it's good. There are a lot of techniques being shared online with how you can avoid that guy who continually knocks on your door or from the census. Actually, just for sort of like a comment or something. <laughs> so in my case, um, I, uh, English is my second language. And when I got the letter, I showed it to my husband, whose first language is English. And we were like debating. I said like, um, or we have to fill up the census, you know, go to that site on that particular date. He said, why don't you just try? It may be up because from what, he, you know, he read, it may be that it's up, but it wasn't that clear. But fortunately for me, I listened to my husband, so it's a good advice, you know, to listen to your husband <laughs> sometimes. And I filled it before <laughs> that date. And, and I was like really surprised. Oh, it's actually up because from what I read, like just one reading, I thought you have to do it exactly at that night. So mm-hmm. it may have been like those who wrote that uh, that communication or the letter, they could have just pointed out that the site is available from this period to this period, but uh, the questions will pertain about uh, to, to that specific night. Uh, what were uh, where were you and who's with you and all those things. So they could have like it could be like uh, you know. They could have done it better. So so I think one of the major problems is uh, bad advice about um, uh, the fact that you have to do it on the night combined with the first time ever that they were actually trying to do it online live. Um, There's one more question down. We've got a question up up the back here, actually. Uh, First of all, Island Australia really is ignoring the fact that we have a long and varied tradition of hacking things. Um, And the second one was it's possible that the $9 million was, in fact, far too little to be asking for a competent system. Yes and yes. And, and the other question to that would be, how many million dollars does it take to build a simple data entry website? Twice as much as the accepted quote. <laughs> <laughs> if um, I, wanted, I wanted to go back to the idea of the supply chain, so the hardware and the firmware are that area... This is the same context as well, but we're looking at the process, you know. So I think we, I mean, everything that is on the national interest of the Australia, every people in here who pay taxes, I think we have, we have the state interest to, to voice out and be, to know how this is going to take place. It, there, there should be transparency. You know, it shouldn't be a handshake between senator or whoever and, 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 and a private company. And then that's it. The nine million, whatever, how much money it's going to take to, to build this simple thing, you know, and then the rest of the people will, will just, are we going to agree with that? I, I think we, there's a lot of brilliant people here and that money could have been just within Australia and we can build that. Yeah, hands up who wants $9.5 million. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Um, was there one last question on census fail over here? Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, look, I think that uh, probably Ticket Tech or Ticketmaster would have been better uh, options for winning the tender. But um, I just want to talk about encry- encryption and you know how our data is actually protected. And one of the things that concerned me leading up to census night was the information that was being published by the ABS Census Twitter account, among other sources. They were also doing this on Twitter. Uh, sorry, on Facebook. And also on the media, they had several spokespeople sort of follow the same line. And I'll just uh, share with you something that came out on the 28th of July. Someone asked uh, this Twitter account, the ABS Census Twitter account, why do we have to give our names this time? And the response came back, names have been collected in every modern census and are kept securely with the, and I quote, strongest level of encryption. And I really just wonder, what is this strongest level of encryption? (laughs) 
Well, well, since um, we've, we've ASD got... was reviewing, its job was to review the cryptographic architecture as the, in that chain of, um, of organizations. It would be interesting to, to know. I was just going to say it's a proprietary algorithm developed by IBM for the uh, for the Census Bureau, and uh, if we told you, we'd have to kill you. It's 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 post quantum resistant though. We've got another so, question. So XOR then. Another question up the back, if that's all right. Yep. I mean, uh, as someone who actually only been here for 16 years, uh, when now I've got Australian citizenship, I found the whole fact that on the form was actually no reference that you're legally obliged to fill it out. There was nothing. So when I looked at it, I was almost throwing it out and going like, oh, this is garbage, it's just junk mail. It didn't say you have to fill it out. So how is one actually supposed to know that you're legally obliged to do that if it doesn't call that out on the form? So now assuming that, okay, I've talked to people, like I'll figure out, okay, you are legally obliged, even though it doesn't say so. I mean, from there on, I just went downhill. The whole communication, right, you look at every single piece, even if they didn't get the technology right, you would have thought by now they at least get the communication right. Now, if they didn't, then I go like, well, how much can you actually trust them with my data at all, full stop? And that's at that point where I thought, well, I'm actually not happy to give them any piece of data, right? So just keep that in mind. Well, here's a question. How many of you did not answer one or more questions on the census? Wow. I didn't answer any. I answered questions I wasn't asked. So I guess uh, another point that some or concerns that people had about the, the census was around the, uh, the identifier that was stored because I know people were submitting names but then it's being supposedly anonymised to an identifier. Mm-hmm. Now I know that some people uh, worked backwards from information to find I think Malcolm Turnbull's mm-hmm. um, identifier just from his information um, and I think there was also some concerns that didn't get a lot of... Um, coverage in the media around the fact that the identifier stays the same per person across Sensei in the future. So your data from this census is attached to the next census, is attached to the next census, back to your ID. That that is true. There is an identifier for census data. The one people were looking at in reverse engineering, though, is a standard called SLK581. That which is used for medical data, it's crap, but that's not the one that is used for census data. We don't, I don't think we know what it is, but yes, it is designed to connect people up historically. So, I mean, there are obviously good things that you can do with that kind of data. Um, one of the key things about this census is that they were going to keep the linkage between a person's name and address and date of birth and that identifier longer, much longer than in previous years. And this is where some of the communications fail happen. The ABS is saying, well, we've always done this. Well, you have, but you haven't done this next bit of keeping that linkage database for longer. You know, I think we're meant to move on, but I think one question that you should ask yourself is, why does the government want to continue this linkage of census data? Uh, traditionally, census data isn't something that needs to be continually associated with each other. So um, you know, that, that would be the question I would want to know, is why, why is our government wanting to continually track um, the change of a particular person's family as opposed to just the population at large? Like the Stasi didn't. Just very quickly, the, the Australian Bureau of Statistics is not a spy organisation and it is in fact a crime for them to give the data to any of our spy organisations. All right, I know you'll then come back with a whole lot of other tinfoil stuff and maybe some of it's true and a valid concern. But no, this is just demographers getting 
kind of above their station. Oh, come on. We could have left them with a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get one later. So we're back to the Russians again. <laughs> Can I just well, say one thing? I mean, I'm not too worried about the conspiracy because I agree. I, don't, I live in Canberra, okay? And, and sometimes there's a... There's a sorry. There's I think a, that, that's, that should make you a conspiracy theorist. I just sometimes feel there's somebody having a good idea at the moment. I don't see the conspiracy behind it. But I'm actually much more worried about the principle of, of using a security company to do security. I mean, if I was to ask you to put your hands up and say, who thinks IBM's a security company? I wouldn't expect any of you to put your hands up. So why do not we not go back to the principle of building in security to our processes. I have to assume that IBM are a data company, so therefore they can use the, uh, look after the data. Oh, and by the way, they'll secure it. Secure it. Um, but that's not what we believe. It's one of our fundamentals that the security is built in. And that's what's been breached, and that's what we should be making a fuss about, I think. Good point, very good point. Um, just before we jump onto the discussion of shadow brokers, there is one question I'd like to put to each of the panelists, which is, and it comes out of census fail and data linkages, um, is privacy dead? I'll just pass that one along. <laughs> Jill, do you think privacy uh, is dead? I don't fill in data which w could be used against me. <laughs> I just want to know, is, uh, is your census data relevant to your elections? Because then maybe it is Russia. <laughs> no, uh, I don't know. Uh, privacy management is obviously extremely complicated, and I think it's probably above the heads of your average consumer. Even in this room, I think managing our own privacy is quite difficult, um, and you have to have a direct intention and in, um, be privacy-minded in order to maintain that. Um, you know, operational security is something that is typically a compartmentalized portion of um, activity on the internet. So it's very difficult to maintain continual privacy. Very quickly, now of course privacy is not dead. You're all still happily wearing clothes, so I can't see your naughty pits. <laughs> and you have doors on your homes that you can lock and stop random people wandering in and, and seeing what you do in the privacy of your own homes. We have more privacy in certain aspects than in fact in the past. Uh, someone who grew up in an in Indian a village in India reminded me that they had no privacy in that village. There were no glass in the windows and they heard every argument, every father complaining about what his daughter was doing um, and they got private. Privacy is essentially a middle class construct anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. <laughs> Those running dog capitalists. <laughs> Yeah, so um, that, that is very interesting from the perspective of a bigger picture of billions of machines uh, and too many people. Like, I think privacy is relative to everyone. Uh, like, for every country, you define your privacy different from China, different from Russia, different from the U.S. Even U.S. is also almost divided for each of their own definition of privacy. So it, it becomes so complex, I think, um, because some will say we're not misbehaving here. Uh, this is legitimate. And for another country that got affected or another entity or organization or people, it was said, hey, you're violating my privacy. So now that will be a huge, huge argument and very, very difficult to, to settle. Uh, you have to have, uh, I think, legal team to, to, to be in the middle of this kind of discussion. And of course, there's like in Europe, as you might know, uh, Microsoft is always getting privacy kind of 
issues or you know cases at least being filed against. Uh, so this is very very difficult discussion because when you look at privacy, like what exactly is is wrong with, with the idea? <laughs> you know, like for you know. Because uh, you're, you're not being heard anyway. So I've, I've heard this argument in some colleague in the Middle East. They don't believe in the idea of privacy. So I think you're right. It's a, it's a construct of a middle class. Well, I think there's a... <laughs> I think the problem is that there's always been a large divide between the expectation of privacy and the reality of what's in the legal framework of what's provided by individual countries. And I mean, a, a good evidence of this is if you're on Facebook, you know, every single year you end up with these, uh, you know, mass mail repeat things where people are like, oh, you know, you better post this, otherwise Facebook's going to be able to steal your photos and crap like that. You know, shall we think of the children and educate them on what privacy really is and what, what to expect? Because that's a real problem. I mean, people coming up in society that don't understand the difference between, um, you know, their access and social interactions and the uh, assumptions of privacy. So we might jump, before you jump in again, um, <laughs> onto the topic of shadow brokers. Uh, on a bit of background, in case any of you were living in a cave at the beginning of August, a group calling itself Shadow Brokers published some exploits and other toolkits specifically targeting enterprise firewall products. And uh, these were attributed um, potentially to the NSA's tailored access operations because some of the names had, had been found were uh, found in information that had been released by Snowden. Um, my question is, uh, is the equation group um, threat actor actually part of the NSA or a third-party developer or aligned with the NSA? Um, and what do enterprise device manufacturers like Cisco or others, what can they actually uh, do to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen? Um, well, I'll comment first and then at the end I'll comment again. But um, I can't specifically talk about attribution. You know, that's a sensitive area. Um, what I can say is I did actually reverse engineer the malware myself. Um, so we did a thorough analysis, and we do have hundreds of people inside Cisco that are, you know, uh, responsible for securing the, the product line. These are uh, older exploits in general. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting tool, <coughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm kind of kind of hands are tied as far as, as what I can comment there. So I'll, I'll go ahead and let you guys comment first. Well, uh, unlike Richard, I, I don't have any official knowledge. So I could, I, I could make all sorts of interesting conjectures about it. I think one of the things is, you know, as, as could you all, right? One of the interesting things is look at the vendors who weren't in the dump. Why is that? Uh, another interesting thing about it is, you know, it's highly likely based on analysis that's been done that, yes... Uh, it was Equation Group. I think it came down to the RC6 usage. Um, was one of the was one of the telltale indicators and a constant that they used. Although that could have just been an artifact of the compiler actually representing an add as a subtractive a negative. But anyway, um, the the interesting thing though is it looks like it was Equation Group. But then I, I think the question you asked about is Equation Group part of the NSA or affiliated with the NSA, I think in the world in which... You know, we've already talked about outsourcing, right? In, in the world in which we live, that question ceases to have as much meaning. Aside from, for, say, Booz Allen Hamilton, because now that's 
two, Snowden and Martin now, in case you're keeping track. And since we're talking shadow brokers, that's probably an interesting point to bring up is the uh, ex-Booz Allen Hamilton, ex-NSA guy, uh, Harold Thomas Martin III, with a name like that, he deserved to be arrested. Come on. Um, he, he was arrested and had 50 terabytes of data seized, right? Now, yeah, I, I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with this yet because it was just a breaking story. So there is a, a new NSA contractor that was just arrested uh, last week. No, no, uh, no. The interesting yeah. thing is he was arrested back in August. It only leaked that he'd been arrested last week. Right, okay, so he's in jail. Um, but yeah, so he's been uh, associated with the NSA through seven different contracting firms since the 90s. So he's been there about 20 years. And, yeah, has exfiltrated not only data in the order of 50 gigabytes, but actual machines. Uh, he had them in his car. Uh, he also likes to carry around guns for whatever reason. Um, you know, kind of, kind of a funny, shady character. Um, also, to, to relate it to some of the stuff that we were talking about on the IoT side, the interesting thing, at least on the Cisco part of the malware, is that it was once again using default passwords uh, to get the initial <laughs> vector onto the machine. And if you go read any of the analysis, basically what happened was they got uh, unprivileged access onto the router through a default Cisco Cisco, and then they used a local exploit to gain privileges and then continue on their exploit chain. So uh, once again, we see that um, the default password problem is something that exists not only in the crappy consumer devices that you buy for 20 bucks off the internet, but also still today in enterprise deployments. Um, so still an issue. If we want to attribute it to a, a government agency, it is one of the largest caches of malware that's been available before. So it is interesting to just see the engineering practices and the workflows and pipelines that are being developed when an um, organized you know, group is specifically um, trying to write malware, I guess. I, yeah, I can't, I can't I suppose I can add one thing, and this is something uh, Mikko Hippinen from F-Secure pointed out. She had an offset several years ago now. He just searched through the jobs available ads at all of the major American defence contractors, you know, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, etc., etc., and where the jobs required a top-secret clearance and you needed to have skills in writing malware. And he found just in that one week there were hundreds of vacant jobs. The, the, the industry that is busily stockpiling air-to-air -air missiles and everything and bullets and everything else is also happily stockpiling different kinds of malware and has been for years. So uh, I even have the question, OK, we've got this big bunch of stuff that has allegedly come out of NSA and their contract and all their contractors. So what proportion of the whole trove does this represent? My gut <coughs> feeling is probably a tiny amount. Mm -hmm. Do we have any views from the panellists on governments hacking the shit out of each other? <laughs> An excellent question, Sid. <laughs> well, and, and is the West a, hip, a bunch of hypocrites for pointing the finger at Russia yet again? Well, it, it's not so much that we're hypocrites for pointing the finger at them because, hey, they did it, probably. <laughs> 
Probably. Uh, is, is everybody up to date with the um, shortened URL attacks that the, they recently were able to do? The ad- so basically there's now forensic evidence in, in the public that's been written up um, related to the U.S. Uh, DNC, the Democratic National Convention, the OPM attacks, like the government attacks that have been going on that are politically motivated that we, um, the U.S. government a couple weeks ago publicly attributed to Russia and since then Obama said that he will take some sort of uh, you know, retribution action against Russia in the cyber war that's happening. Um, so there is now not only just the claim that's out there, but there's actually a write-up uh, as of this week that talks about how they were using the um, ti- was it tiny URL service, one of the URL shortener services, and it turns out uh, they were um, using the same account to generate massive phishing um, emails, and so they were actually able to associate that this was indeed the same attacker, which um, in the in the news we're calling Guccifer or, or whatever. So sorry to interrupt, but. No, it's all good. Uh, Gustav II from memory mm-hmm. is, the, is the Russians. So there's that, you know, hey, pointing the finger isn't necessarily hypocrisy because we're not saying we don't do it, right? Everybody does it. That's, okay, newsflash, that's what our spy agencies are for, right? I mean... <laughs> um, I wish I had brought all these statistics with me, but this is all in the public domain anyway. I know I'm part of us, right? So I'm as neurotic as you about cybersecurity. But I work with a professor of policy. So he, co- he goes and gets documents in the public domain. And, he- and we've written a paper together about which countries have the capacity and actually what they're doing. So that isn't secret. Um, You'll definitely get a thousand email requests in your mailbox yeah, now. <laughs> I, I mean, we've, I know that we've done this because I was because it's his. You know, when you work with somebody from a different discipline, you think, "Wow, wow, wow!" <laughs> you know, I thought that was all in the Mandian report. You mean you know this as well? You know, uh, but it's there. It's there, and it's open. It's in different governments' documents. You you have to look carefully, but it's it's not hidden. Is that attribution actually coming from government voices or is it coming from the third-party contractors that do the analysis like Mandiant and all that? Okay, interesting. Surprisingly, Stilgarian has a view on this. Oh, no, Max does. I just wanted to ask a question about uh, this. Um, There's a professor in Harvard. He pointed out about uh, arm control. Should we think or consider at least this malware weaponizing the cyberspace you know, and getting us all caught in the middle of all these wars. You know, if you think about numbers, how much money, like, for example, in the U.S., they spent $20 billion in cyber defense. Australia has $200 million. So imagine for each of the countries has money. And now, you know, you have this almost like an anomalous space. <laughs> So that's an interesting question. Should we consider, arm, you know, consider malware as uh, arm control, like have similar to guns and weapon and nuclear? Should we consider that? And if we do consider it that way, maybe you can respond to this, Dilgarian. Do we need to tell Australia if Darwin's being bombed? Oh, uh, would we notice? I mean, that's... <laughs> not, not unless our fridge caught on fire. Is that what you say? <laughs> Uh, everything catches fire these days. No, I wanted to say something briefly about the arms control uh, aspect of malware. This is something that Eugene Kaspersky has been talking about for a number of years now. Disclosure, I have sucked at the teat of their largesse uh, a couple of times. Uh, F's and stuff. But 
<laughs> you should see Eugene. Uh, like, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Don't go there. Come on, yeah. still. And, and we're back at Russia, I know. That's on a red tube, not um, YouTube. Eugene has actually been talking about arms control, and here's the problem. There is a thing called the Wassenaar, the Wassenaar Agreement. Yeah. Who's heard of that? Yeah. Uh, well, maybe. That was a topic uh, here last year, actually. Of, that was a topic on the panel last year. Uh, excellent. So some of you know about it. Very quickly, it's, uh, it's an international treaty about dual-use civilian military technology. And its main focus has been things like, well, a chemical weapons factory can look very much like a brewery. Or, or a, a nuclear fuel reprocessing plant can also look very much like a nuclear bomb uh, fuel-making plant. So it's about a regime of inspections and so on. Now, when you start talking about some sort of inspection regime for looking for dual-use military-civilian writing of malware, what are you looking for? You're looking for a person with a laptop. (laughs) You know, at least a big chemical plant or a, a radioactive material processing facility is something you can see from a satellite photograph or you can at least see... The, the openings for the tunnels for the, um, the mountain under which they buried the thing like North Korea does but how do you inspect every single laptop capable of developing code? You can't <laughs> Well because it's an export control I mean there, there are points in which that you would want to check that but I, I would defer to you I'm curious is there an update on what's gone on in Australia since last year the uh, panel um, last year was talking about how Bostoner was being discussed within the Australian Congress um, or um, politics. Mm. Okay. Um, we, I can, I can tell there's a desire to move towards the free drinks at the pub. Um, but before we do that, I might um, ask each of the panelists if they have anything that they want to um, read off the Twitter sphere that's really funny, or else comment on generally on the things that we've been talking on. And particularly, I'd ask um, Jill. I find it very interesting that um, Jill's offering uh, a new master's degree course that might must be the first of its type in Australia. So why don't, why don't we start closing comments with you, Jill, and then each of the panelists can say something in closing, and then we'll all go drink alcohol. We were having a laugh about another university uh, about just about to uh, step on the bandwagon of master of cyber security. Um, I, I just got there before the rest of them. So next year we begin to offer master of cyber security advanced tradecraft. Um, it's done intensely in Canberra, so you do a whole week, 40 hours of hands-on plus theory. But um, I'm trying to be responsive to what I call the community and not just teach you some of the things you would have learned years ago at uni, maybe if you did a BIT or MIT brackets security of some kind, trying to treat, teach the stuff you really, we really need. So we've been looking at exploit development, uh, big data analytics for security, different approaches to forensics as a big, as a big data issue, memory forensics. And um, Silvio teaches, uh, people know Silvio, reverse engineering of, of malware. If he's, I don't know if he's here, but um, um, nope. I, I'm really grateful for people who have been um, volunteering to work with me, some of the best in the country, to develop courses which are relevant. So um, I just encourage you, if you're interested, to have a look at what we're doing, because I'm very keen that we equip ourselves 
for when the fridges take over. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it's quite interesting talking to Jill about the fact that perhaps half of um, the people who've signed up for the new Tradecraft master's degree are, are uh, from the private sector, um, which is quite telling of the transition perhaps for contracting. Now, did you have some final comments you wanted, Barry, in closing before we... Yeah, I just wanted to point to the, uh, the third tweet on the stream there. That's gold. Do you want to read it? That's the Samsung gold. one. Wait, it's it's uh, the Samsung CEO one. When I said burn a new ROM on the phone, not quite what I had in mind. <laughs> Very good. Did you have a closing? Uh, sure. I guess in closing comments, um, you know, when we come to security conferences, there's a lot of focus on offensive research in the sense of you see a lot of trainings that are around writing exploits and, and things along those lines. I do like that uh, this year at RuxCon we had a number of talks that were on the process of finding vulnerabilities at scale and different techniques for identifying uh, software vulnerabilities. This is clearly something that needs to be propagated, not just to the people in this room, but out to um, you know, software companies, people that are writing the uh, firmware for the embedded devices and so on. Um, so I'd like to see that trend continue, not, not to mention due to policy, you know, we might find ourselves in trouble the more that we have exploits on our machines as opposed to working on the ways to uh, kind of the, the, the dual purposing of offensive research is to really al- allow it to leak into the defensive side of things where people can use it to uh, secure their software. So, um, mm, yeah, that's about good. it. Metz, do you have a final closing comment? Uh, actually, for me, I wanted to ask to be more um, ethical and think about implication of whatever discovery and um, methods that might hurt other people or it might go back to us. Whenever you publish something, you have to think this way, not just for fun anymore because someone can pick it up and do harm to another entity. So uh, I would... Although there's a level of tolerance at the moment, you know, um, anyone can code, can attack, can do these things. This is part of our expression, but we have to think about the implications too. Yeah, that's this for me. Still, Gary, giving you the last word. Excellent. I'll do a plug. Uh, much as Jill uh, does run uh, Australia's first Masters in Cybersecurity, the upstart she was referring to is La Trobe University here in Melbourne. They start their uh, Masters of Cybersecurity in the coming year. They've got a number of events uh, coming up to help promote that, including a free panel this Wednesday night. Link in the Twitter stream. So a big round of applause for Sule and the panel. A really interesting panel this year. There's a bit of a sudden ending to the discussion, uh, but it's a little bit better than how the conversation trailed off on the the day itself. I'd like to thank uh, our major sponsors for these podcasts, Pivot9 Consulting at pivot9.com and also Hackers Helping Hackers. Check out what they do because they're about uh, putting money back into the community uh, and helping hackers get to conferences and such like when they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. Also, a shout-out to our splendid supporters 
Adam Baxter, Rowan Pearce, David Heath, Rosemary White, Trent Yarwood, Stuart Young, Martin Ongle, Bruce Hoare and two anonymous people. Also our fine supporters, Jody Miners, Ginevra Bakes, Errol Cavett, Adam Fitzpatrick, Tim Bell, Oberon's Ghost, Nick Andrew, Rick Heyman, Sil Mobile, Deej Bar, Lucas James, Gavin Costello, Matthew McBride, Katrina Zetsi, Zetti, I should say, Paul Kidd and three anonymous people. And also thank you to the generosity of Peter Leverdink, Ian Chalmers, David Pope, David J. Bruce, two more anonymous people, and all those who tipped me a few dollars along the way or bought me a drink. That's all for today's episode of Corrupted Nerds. And indeed, this is the final episode for 2016. Corrupted Nerds will uh, return in 2017 on a schedule to be announced early in the new year. I'm still Gerian, and I'll see you then. Corrupted Nerds is a Skank Media production. Sorry.